Well, good morning. Let me um, let me preface my sermon this morning with a couple remarks. You know, I think at Christmas time and the giving of gifts, we ask one another, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And uh, when you're when you're younger, you, you know, you have these intense desires for things. You want to get your specific Christmas present. When you get older, uh, we have different kinds of desires, but. No matter what they are, everyone has uh, these appetites and desires in their heart. But I think if we're honest and we look very deeply, there's something inside every human being, a longing, a craving, uh, a desire that remains unmet. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much success you have in your career or perhaps your family, um, we all, I think, feel that there's something missing. We're not completely satisfied, uh, not completely satiated. And this is what I think Christmas uh, has to offer us. In the Christmas story, there is a promise that God will reach into our lives through His Son, Jesus Christ, and will provide that deepest longing and craving that we all have. That sometimes we don't even know what it is. And so I hope this morning and this final Sunday of Advent that you will listen uh, to uh, the Word of God and hear what He says uh, through an obscure prophet. Uh, You may have some trouble finding this in your Bible. I'm going to try to help you. Uh, The prophet Haggai. If you want to look it up in your Bible, he's towards the very end of the Old Testament a couple books back, and if you'll look in Haggai chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. If you don't want to use the Bible, it's printed in in your bulletin. And so, uh, let me read this passage in chapter 2, just the first nine verses, and uh, let's begin. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people, for the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Yet, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, 
declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this wonderful promise to bring in the desire of all men's hearts. Open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear. Help us to understand and to know the truth of Your great Gospel. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. When you're reading the prophets, all of them, the the big prophets, the, the ones with big books, and these guys like Haggai that are small, three chapters, they all follow a basic pattern. And that pattern is, these prophets were sent to bring accusations against the people for their disobedience and their rebellion and their sin. And so these prophets would come and they would say these terrible things and scare everybody to death. And then right away, because it was poetry, they would, they would have these, these uh, patterns of, of uh, cursing and, and scary stuff. And, you know, the land's going to dry up and blow away and the locusts are going to come. But I'm going to bless you and I'm going to do this and this. And so there's this back and forth. And in the book of Haggai, it's one of the easiest to understand. Haggai did his whole prophecy in just a few months. But he comes and there's four oracles in this prophecy. The first one is his, um, his rebuke of the people for their lethargy. You see, they had been carried away. Their whole nation had been leveled by the uh, nation of Babylon. And all of the people in the land were carried away as slaves into Babylon. And there they lived for 70 years, more or less. And when they came back, God commanded them again through the prophets to rebuild their temple. And they would get started and they would build the temple and they'd get a few bricks going and all of that. And then there'd come some opposition and they would stop building. Or they would get concerned with their own personal business or try to get their farm going or their orchard back up, which was all necessary. But they would do these things and of course... um, They left the temple building off. So he sent more prophets. And Haggai was one. And Haggai came. And in his first oracle, he rebukes them for their lethargy. And he says, go and build this house. If you will build this house, I will come. And in his second oracle, the one that I just read, he says, go to work. Build the house. And if you build it, I will come. I will be there. I will fill it with the former glory. And in that presence, His former glory, the glory that would return to the house that had been torn down and destroyed, that would meet their desire. In the third oracle, He talks about the lack of blessing. He said, the reason you're not being blessed is because you're uh, holding back. Don't hold back. And then in the the fourth oracle, he goes on and and talks about Zerubbabel, this interesting character who is the governor at that time of Judah. And he uses Zerubbabel, this man, as a sign. And he says Zerubbabel is going to stand, is going to stay firm, but all the nations around you are going to collapse. They're all going to fall. They're all going to be destroyed. And so those are the four oracles And this morning we'll look at this. And uh, uh, we're going to look at, first of all, how does God meet our deepest desires? Uh, Some people don't want to admit they have them, but I'll tell you I do. And, uh, And I've had, I've lived long enough, I had a successful business, I've had money, and I've had no money. 
and neither one have satisfied me. So having money didn't satisfy me. And when I lost money, it didn't satisfy me either. So being poor, being rich, having a lot, having a little, being in good health, being in bad health, you can have all these things and somehow they don't seem to scratch the itch that we have. And so he talks about meeting our deepest desire. Then the second part is our necessary part. The part that we have to play. And we all have a part to play in God's plan for this world. And then finally, His profound promise. Those are the three things we'll talk about. So look at the first one. Our deepest desire. He talks about the former glory. He asks them in verse 3, How many of you are left? You see, there were some people still living that had seen Solomon's temple before it was torn down. And now they were old. And the prophet Haggai is addressing a large group of people. And he says, how many of you are here that saw that original temple? And of course, you can imagine some people raised their hand. And then he asks them, how does this one appear to you? The one that was halfway built that wasn't nearly, it wasn't gilded in gold like that original temple. It didn't have much of anything. How does this one appear to you? And of course, you could hear the moans and the groans. Oh, this is nothing compared to the one we had before. And the prophet stings him. He says, isn't this nothing in your eyes? Don't you see this is nothing compared to that former glory? He he reaches down inside of their hearts and he starts tugging at that desire, that thing that I was mentioning to you a moment ago. We all have it. It's down underneath. And nice cars and great relationships and a perfect family and the perfect career... And the approval of everyone and the accolades of the world will not give you that. If you're honest, folks, if you really keep going down, you know there's something down in there that's really not being satisfied. Since the Garden of Eden, like we talked about last week, there's something inside every human being. It's just not right. The pieces are not in place. It's the image of God that men and women were given originally, that has been marred and obscured by sin. Lost in some sense. Lost, listen, lost in some sense, but not forgotten. We remember down inside, it's like in Lord of the Rings in Tolkien's great book. Tolkien, they're always thinking about the past and the glory days. Of Minas Tirith and the and the and the, the glory days of the ancient kingdoms, and all of the stories that we know are like that. The glory days. Uh, have any of you been to a high school reunion? Everybody goes. I mean, Raylene and I were at our high school reunion not recently, and and Wayne and a bunch of us. And you know what everybody does, don't you? They all sit around and talk about the glory days. Remember when I was halfback of the football team? Yeah, well, you don't look like that now. You know, like, yeah. Please don't even, you know. We don't, don't even bring that up because you're a, a shadow of your former self or maybe more than a shadow. Um, so you get the picture. I mean, we all want to hearken back to some glorious time because if something really spectacular happened in your life and some pieces really fell together and they were really good and you kind of latch on to that and you remember, you remember, you remember. Oh, I remember when my family was this. I remember when that. And those memories are good, folks. But if you're honest, 
you know that itch is still there. It's still a gnaw inside of our heart. Something is lacking. An insatiable desire. And look, you have got, if you're going to have any hope of a, of a peaceful life, you have got to face the bad news that that's there and you have to come at it and be honest with it. You've got to do what Steve Brown used to tell us. You have to kiss the demon on the lips. You have to go right up close to those things that are, that are gnawing away at the inside and you've got to look at them in the face and then deal with them. And not just deal with them by getting more stuff or more relationships or more better career, or more this, more that, or more of the other, because you already know that won't help. And Haggai is, is going down deep into the heart. This guy was a master preacher. And he went down into the heart and he tugged. You see this beautiful house here that used to, those of you who remember what it used to be? You see this one's not the same? What do you think now? Doing exactly what I'm, I'm attempting to do. Last week I told you that St. Augustine in the very first chapter of his confessions, very famous quote, everybody knows this quote, Augustine prays and he says, O Lord, dear Lord, You have made us for Yourself, but our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. You see, our hearts were made for God. And they're restless until they find their rest in Him. C.S. Lewis said this, If you seek heaven you get earth thrown in. But if you seek the earth, you get neither. And Jesus put it this way, store your treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust can corrupt them, where thieves cannot break through and steal, for where your treasure is, what? There will be your heart also. You see, money can be taken away. Fame can be taken away. A career can be lost. You can lose a marriage. You can lose a child. You can lose a spouse. You can lose an election. All of these things can happen, folks. Anything can be lost. And Haggai is saying, look, we lost something. We lost this former glory. But there's a part that you and I have to play. And that's the second part. Our necessary part. Verses uh, 4 and 5. He tells them this. He says, be strong, be strong, be strong. Now you all know that when the Bible, there was no exclamation points and commas and, 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 you know, they didn't have those devices yet in ancient writing. And so what they did in order to put an exclamation point is they would repeat. There was repetition. So he says three times, be strong. What do you think he wanted them to do? Be strong. He says, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Work. Build. Build the temple. Why? Why would you do this against all the opposition? And if you read the prophets, you know that they had tremendous opposition. It wasn't like, uh, you know, people were saying, uh, oh, don't do that. They were actually coming at night and taking the stones down. The, the Israelites would build in the day and the bad people would come at night and take the stones down. And they would put together little groups of armies and they would fight and try to stop them. I mean, it was life and death. 
And so they would just, okay, okay, we won't build the temple, we'll leave it all alone. But he tells them, I'm with you, I'm in your midst. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Work. Work. Now, whenever you say the word work in a Protestant church, especially among Reformed people like us who have asked John Calvin into our hearts, whenever you say work, everybody breaks out in hives uh, because we have an allergic reaction to work. Do you know why? Do you all know why? The reason why we have an allergic reaction to work is because work has been tied with merit. Right? Right? This is what the Reformation was all about. This is why we went to war uh, with our big brother, the Catholic Church, and others. Because we're allergic to the idea of work equaling merit. In other words, you work, you perform, and you do for God and He does for you. After all, it's in the Bible, right? God helps those that help themselves. Isn't that a Scripture somewhere? No, of course not. And I love being a Protestant and I love being reformed in my theology. I love understanding the, the, the theology of the Reformation. But that in no way says that we're not to be working. That we're not to be active. It's just saying that we're supposed to be working and active and passionate about what we do with a different motive in our heart. Not that we're going to earn God's favor. Listen to me, folks. Nothing that you and I do ever, no matter how grandiose it is or how sacrificial it is, ever in a million years is going to impress God. Do you know why? Very simply, do you know why He's not impressed with all our good work and our good effort? Not that He doesn't care. He's delighted when we do it. He relishes your effort and your good work. Effort is not a four-letter word. But do you know why it doesn't impress Him? It doesn't dazzle Him? And why He doesn't have a, a, a register and He's checking off, Oh gosh, Chuck did really good today. Three, four, five points. Oh, not too bad. Do you know why He doesn't? Because He's seen the best. He's seen the Mona Lisa. He has seen the masterpiece. And it hung on a cross. It walked through villages and cured lepers. It healed the blind. It opened the ears of the deaf. This man, Jesus Christ, His very own Son, painted the masterpiece. Composed the beautiful music. And we must never, never bring our paltry efforts and say, here Lord, take this. He'll take it, but He'll only take it when He looks at the masterpiece and says, are you my child? Yes, I'm yours. Oh, come here with your drawing because I have the masterpiece up here on the wall. The Sistine Chapel. Jesus Christ, the great artist, the great composer, the beauty maker. And all our works and all our efforts, folks, are not for nothing. In fact, they, they find their value in His work and in His effort. And that's the motive for our work and our effort. We cannot be allergic to work and effort. It's important. The Apostle Paul understood this. He knew that it was Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Paul understood that completely. 
And he had a dinner. They were in Galatia and he met with um, uh, 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 Peter and the other apostles. Some others were there. And Peter started to pull himself away from the Gentiles and, and, and only hang out with the Jews and eat their food. And Paul opposed him, the great apostle Peter, to his face. And Paul says this in the book of Galatians, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with or in line with the Gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, if you, listen to what he says, this is brilliant, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What Paul is saying is simply this, Peter, you know, That you're not saved by your work or by your effort or by being circumcised or keeping the Old Testament laws and regulations. You know that. You know that. Why would you then take that and make it a condition for these poor Gentiles? How dare you? And sure enough, Peter was sorry for it. They had a big conference anyway. That's another sermon. We're never, folks, never to identify with the building. When Haggai told them, go to work, build the temple, he was not saying build the temple so that we can have a building. And I'm telling you this, as long as I'm your pastor, I am not going to let 1500 wrestler become your God. Never. I would rather die. And so it must never become our God. A building can never become our God. I'll tell you why buildings are important. Because God meets us there. Yes? He's important. And so if we gather at 1500 Wrestler, or at the synagogue, or if we gather in a tent out in a parking lot, that location becomes important. Why? Because He's there. Not because of the building. And this is what Haggai's digging for. He's telling them, build, build. Don't identify with the building, but the glory. The glory that inhabited that building. We need Him back. It's not the building. It would. Who's going to be in the building? You see, David, the, the King David understood this. In Psalm 132, he says this. I just read it this last week, and I was so grateful so I could bring it to you. David said this, Psalm 132, I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You see, down deep inside the bones of this wonderful psalmist, King David, was this passion and desire to have a dwelling place for God. And David wanted it so badly that he built his house right next door. So that he could just get up in the morning and step out of his bedroom and into the building. Then it was a tent. But it was right there. And he would go immediately. That's where he went. He wanted to be there. And somehow we've lost sight that it's about God and His building. And so folks, think about the... the, Don't let things camouflage or pretend to be the things that can satisfy you. They cannot. 
and they will not. Not that getting them isn't good. It's great to have money. It's great to have success. Good to have a career. Good to have a family that's well put together. All great. But it's when you begin using those very good things to make your life have meaning and identity that you begin to lose your soul. And you begin to become a slave to those things. I had a business 20 years. And I was somebody. I was the boss of my business. Big deal. I had seven or eight. One time I had 14 employees. Big deal. But I thought I was a big deal. And then I sold everything. And we moved to Florida. And I'm in graduate school. And guess what? Nobody there knows me or cares who I am. And so when I would go in the room, everybody would just, oh, we don't know who he is. Who cares? And I had an identity crisis because I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be well known. I wanted people to respect me like I had had respect in El Paso. At least among those few people. <laughs> Do you see how fleeting it is? Do you see how silly it is? When you start stripping it all away and say, come on, get real. I mean... Honestly, folks, we, we invest so much in these things and they will not and cannot satisfy us. And that's what Haggai's pushing at. He's pushing at the glory. That thing you were created for, that thing you were made for, that fellowship with God through His Son Jesus, now that, that will do something in your life. His profound promise. Look at this third point. It starts in verse 6. He says... It, well, let me, let me read it to you if I can see it. Maybe not. I'll read this one. Thus says the Lord, yet once more in a little while. See, they have to print it real big for me. Um, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure... Uh, one translation says the desire. Another translation says the desired one. I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory. You see, the glory that had been lost when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, tore the temple down. They tore it down and burned it to the ground and hauled away all of the gold, all of the silver that Solomon and all of his sons for centuries had accumulated. They were massively wealthy. They hauled it all away and it was all gone. And the worst loss of all was the glory of God left as well. We don't know when it left, but it left. And so that glory that they had in the temple, the presence of God in their midst was gone. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations, the desire will come. I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine. He's saying, don't worry about money and things. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. I'll take care of that. And the former glory, the, the, the future glory will be greater than the former glory. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's no record in the Bible, folks, ever that I can find. Maybe somebody else knows, but I, I haven't been able to find it. When the actual day, the glory left 
the temple. We don't know if it left sometime during the reign of those evil kings. We don't know if the glory left the temple then. We don't know if it left when uh, Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians. We don't know if it left maybe when the temple was torn down. We don't know what happened to the ark, a Harrison Ford notwithstanding. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is. If it's buried in Egypt, uh, well, let's go find it. But believe me, unlike the movie, if you open the lid of the Ark of the Covenant now, a beam of light isn't going to come out and make you turn you into jelly. It's just not going to happen. Because the glory isn't there anymore. We don't know when the glory left. But we know when it returned. Isn't that great? Let me read it to you. It's part of our Christmas story and why I'm preaching you this sermon. Because we know when the glory came back. We don't know when it left, but we know when it came back. There was a man in Jerusalem, Simeon, who was righteous, devout, and waiting for the consolation The consolation was the return of the great king and the kingdom and the glory. They were under the thumb of the Romans, but they were hoping for this consolation. This great king who would come and bring the glory back to the temple. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the King. Christ means King. Come, He came into the Spirit into the temple and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, when the parents brought in the child Jesus, they were going to do the ceremony that was necessary for her cleansing after having opened the womb. They brought in the child Jesus and Simeon took, listen, took up the child in his arms like I do when we walk these babies through our church and declare that they belong to God. He took him up in his arms. He blessed God and he said this, very famous, Lord, now let... uh, Let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light, listen, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother, they marveled at what was said of him. Folks, what does your heart ache for? This man, Simeon, his heart ached for one thing. His heart ached for the consolation of Israel, for the great King, for the Messiah to come and re-inhabit this beautiful and Herod the Great built the temple to, to the point that it was beyond anything anybody could have ever dreamed. But one thing was lacking in Herod's great temple 
And that thing was the glory of God. It wasn't there. And so as great as Herod's temple was, and people marveled at it, it was not glorious because the glory of God was not there until this baby entered the room. And this man, Simeon, who I hope uh, is, it can be a reflection, an example for us that his desire was to see the Lord's Christ. Only Jesus Christ can fill that desire. How? How does he do that, folks? How could Jesus possibly fill the desire of your heart? And I'll tell you, Dr. John Stott said, here's how he did it. He did it by being born. By living a perfect, sinless life. By doing all the things that we should be doing and can't and don't. And finally, unjustly and with cruelty, arrested, tortured, and hung on a cross. And there, where he should have experienced the intense pressure and presence of God where he should have known that God was with him during that torturous hours on the cross where he should have had the presence of God where he should have been surrounded with the glory of God he was forsaken there and when he should have gotten a throne put up in front of him he was given a a tomb And it's for that reason that Jesus stepped into our place. He who was the glory of God. The Gospel of John tells us we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. We saw His glory. And He took His glory and He spent it for you and for me so that we could be free forever from that craving and gnawing desire that only takes us into slavery. What he's saying is, like Simeon, come to me, desire me, hunger for me, crave me, fit me into your life, and I will fill you up, and I will add all these other things to you. Seek first. Jesus said, the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We'll never be satisfied without Him. And in that cross, that life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, there was a shaking and an upheaval of all nature. The cosmos changed. There were earthquakes the day He died. Earthquakes the day He rose from the dead. And Haggai, although he didn't see it, the writer of Hebrews did. And the writer of Hebrews said, again and for the last time, I will shake the earth. He quoted Haggai saying, in Jesus Christ, the King, the earth will be transformed and changed. This Christmas... I really pray, folks, that you will look in your heart and then make Him room like the the great hymn, Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare Him room. Take some time, some solitude over the next few days. Find a place of quiet. Ask yourself, 
What is itching and eating away, gnawing inside my heart? Be honest. And when you find it, you bring Jesus Christ into that because with Him you have everything. Without Him, you have nothing. My eyes have seen your salvation. Let's say that with Simeon. Father, uh, thanks for the great glory that you brought us. And I know that at Christmas time we think about all the gifts and the beauty and the lights, and they are beautiful. And it is wonderful, Father, to celebrate this time. But even after we throw all the present uh, wrappings away and we have what we asked for, if we're honest, we all know we're still hungry for something. And I pray especially this year, Father, that you will reach into the hearts of many of us who have deep longings and shine the light of your truth into that longing. Let us see that what we're lacking is the presence of God in our lives and that that presence is promised to us by your Son. By faith, Jesus plus nothing, you're not looking for our performance. We pray, Father, that you'll do that in Christ's name. Amen.